Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This third Sunday of Advent, we remember Jesus' priestly role, how his coming, his life, his death, and even his resurrection were all part of a great and glorious atoning for our sins. We can have deep joy in the midst of our brokenness, sadness, and gloom because we are redeemed by Jesus, our great high priest. His coming is proof that God intends to make a happy exchange. His life for our deadness, his finest garments for our filthy stained rags. Our joy overflows and it will be made complete when Jesus returns again. Hear these words from the writer of Hebrews, the fifth chapter. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also did Jesus, Jesus did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We light these candles with the assurance Jesus has redeemed us at great cost and with great joy. Let us pray. God of hope, you call us home from the exile of selfish oppression to the freedom of justice, the balm of healing, and the joy of sharing. Make us strong to join you in your holy work as friends of strangers and victims, companions of those whom others shun, and as the happiness of those whose hearts are broken. We make our prayer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God of joy and exaltation, you strengthen what is weak, you enrich the poor, and give hope to those who live in fear. Look upon our needs this day. Make us grateful for the good news of salvation, and keep us faithful in your service until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who lives lives forever and ever. Merciful God of peace, your work, spoken by the prophets, restores your people's life and hope. Fill our hearts with the joy of your saving grace, that we may hold fast to your great goodness, and in our lives proclaim your justice in all the world. Amen. Amen.
I am going to raise it up just a little bit. This is going to take a while. So, uh, what we're about to read together is the full uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews. It's about 28 verses. And um, so, we're reading 28 verses together before the sermon uh, because the writer of Hebrews is laying out a pretty masterful argument. Um, and Darden and I both were like, dude, I don't know if there's a way around it because it's just, it's just all good. So if it's going to make sense, we've got to read it all together. Um, the author is trying to find shelf space in the Hebrew mind for uh, a high priest that's higher than the Levitical priesthood that they're used to. So you'll hear about this character, Melchizedek, and if you hang with this through chapter 7, then what Darden uh, brings to us today is probably going to make more sense. So hang in there, all right? Okay? Everybody who's here, you awake? You with me? If I start lulling you to sleep, just like for real. Okay. All right. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. His first, or he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that this is, and this, this is from their brothers, uh, though, those, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him and had the promises. Blessed and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one whom, test, who, whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, in perfection, he had, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe, from whom from which no one had ever descended or served at the altar. For it is evident that the Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who became a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, can you hear me? That's good? All right. I'm going to move some of this stuff out of the way because you can't see me if I'm standing behind the pulpit. I'm just a little bit, a little bit short, although I am going to use that. Perfect. All right. Yes, that was a long passage. I uh, appreciate Jeremy reading it for us this morning. Um, the good news is, is that, in theory, uh, the, the sermon's going to be a little briefer. So, long passage, short sermon. That's, that's a good thing, right? So, hopefully, we will uh, be able to, I'll be able to prove that correct. I'll watch my time and see. So, let me just, let me just get started. Um, back in 1968, uh, my family, before I was born, they moved from a little place called Newton, Iowa. Anybody heard of Maytag, dishwashers, dryers, all that kind of stuff? Uh, Newton, Iowa was the home of that place. Uh, Fred Maytag founded the company there. My mother actually was his personal secretary for a long time, and then they got sold, and, and they closed that. You know, but they still make Maytags. They just make them in the same place where they make Westinghouse and all the other things that they make. But anyway, um, my family moved from there because jobs were leaving and so on. And they moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where I was born just a couple years later. And in fact, until recently, uh, my mother still lived in the exact same house uh, that they built together back in 1968. She still owns the house, but she can't really live on her own anymore. So she uh, stays with my sister now. Um, anyway, all of you have, for all of you that have older siblings, you'll, you'll understand what I'm about to say here. Uh, as a result of being the youngest of four, I, I followed all my siblings through everything in life, right? Particularly school. Since we were all growing up in the same spot, I, I graduated and went, went through the same school that they went through, and I knew all the same teachers and a lot of the same you know, assistants and all the people that were there when they were there. Many of them were there when I went through as well. At times, following my older siblings had some advantages, right? My, my guidance counselor knew my brother, who was the oldest, 13 years older than me, knew my two sisters, and, and because of that, she thought I just was awesome. She thought I was wonderful, and she was tremendously helpful to me as I was growing up and going through high school, uh, particularly when I needed a pass for being tardy or that sort of thing. You know, she was just, now don't let it happen again. She was kind of like my mother, uh, at school at least. And, and so she would do that for me, and she was wonderful. That was all because she loved my siblings. At the same time, it wasn't always easy to follow my siblings, right? I mean, when you follow other people, when, you, when, you're, when you're going behind them and doing the same things with the same people, it, it's, it's difficult for others not to look at you and compare them to you. And it's not that my siblings were, were, were bad students or, or bad kids at all. In, in fact, <laughs> they were actually better students than I was and better kids than I was in many, many ways. And so it was not always easy to be compared to them. For example, my freshman comp teacher... 
My freshman comp teacher had my brother 13 years earlier, and she was old when she had my brother in school, so she was really, really old when she had me in school. And uh, uh, she remembered my brother as being a really talented writer, a really talented poet, he, and he still is to this day. He gets published every so often. He, he's very good at what he does. Um, and, and she remembered that about him, so she expected that I, too, would be just this awesome writer. And I was no slouch, but poetry was not really my thing. And I think she, she grasped that truth. You know, when I handed in my first poetry project, it sounded like something that was written by Fezzik. You all seen uh, Princess Bride, right? Fezzik just rhymed things. Uh, you know, anybody want a peanut? You know, that, stop rhyming or I mean it. You know, anybody want a peanut? That sort of thing. It, it sounded more like something written by Fezzik than something written by Walt Whitman. And so she was a little bit disappointed by my inability to... Uh, put out poetry the way my brother did. Uh, same time, my, my PE teacher remembered my sister as a, as a tremendously talented athlete. And so he wrongly assumed that I too would be an athlete, right? That I would be a physical fitness kind of guy, which is nothing wrong with that. But uh, let's just say um, exercise doesn't fall into my particular set of skills. Uh, it's not something that I do or like to do or ever like to do. And, and I, I proved that point to him. You remember the, the presidential uh, fitness challenge where everybody had to go through, you had to run, you had to run a mile. I missed the eight-minute mile by a mere eight minutes. So um, I, I was about 16 minutes, which was way behind the national average for, for kids in ninth and 10th grade, uh, for boys in ninth and 10th grade is about eight minutes. So uh, I, was, I was off by about eight minutes. That's it, not bad. I mean, if you think about it, I could... I don't think I could run a mile now, but <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe if I needed to. But you get the point, right? Uh, it was not always easy to be compared to my siblings. And over time, throughout high school and other places where I would run into people who knew other people that I knew or knew my siblings or knew my parents, they would compare me. They couldn't help it. It's just kind of what we do. We like to make comparisons. We like to go, oh, they must be, be like this person or they must be like that person. But ultimately, when people were looking at me and, and making comparisons, they found out that ultimately I was nothing like my siblings. Sure, I had the same last name and, and maybe even looked a little bit like them and had some of the same traits, but the fact is, I was different. I was a different person. Sometimes it's nice to be compared to others. Sometimes it's not. For example, if someone says to you, hey, you look a little bit like uh, Robert Downey Jr., you'd go, oh, Okay, he's a handsome guy, he's fit, you know, he's active, that's great. Now, if they said to you, you look a little bit like Morton Downey Jr., you'd go, eh. Does anybody remember who Morton Downey Jr. was? Oh, okay, thank you. There's one. Okay, he was a, he was a sort of a, a shock TV host, you know, talk show, did all sorts of weird things. But you can look him up online, you'll get what I'm talking about. See, sometimes it's good to be compared to people. Sometimes it's a nice thing. Sometimes it's not. Either way, it's important to remember when comparisons are made, regardless of what we're comparing, regardless of whether we're comparing a person, a place, or a thing, regardless, um, all comparisons fall short at some level. No two things are exactly alike in any way, and so all comparisons fall short. And, and it's kind of what's happening in today's passage, right? It's a comparison. It's a comparison of Jesus and Melchizedek, a, 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 priest, a, a high priest um, that very little is said about in the Bible, in Christ. And yet, the comparison falls short. Now, in the first half of Hebrews, uh, the author outlines how 
Jesus is better than all the ways that God has, has spoken or communicated to his people in the past. He's better than the prophets, he's better than the priests, and so on. And um, in Hebrews 7 then, he, he, compares, he compares Jesus to this high priest, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned only ten times in the Bible. Very, very few times for being such an important person. He's mentioned ten times in the Bible, uh, once in Genesis 14, once in Psalm 110, and the rest are in Hebrews. In the Genesis 10 account, we hear that uh, Abraham encountered Melchizedek after a military victory in the east over some, some kings that had joined together to defeat Melchizedek, right? And so what Melchizedek does is he, he blesses Abraham. And in return, Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils of battle. But beyond that, we don't know very much about Melchizedek. We know he was a priest in the line of Abraham. We know that um, he was also king of Salem, which eventually became Jerusalem. We know that he faithfully served God. And we know that he was highly esteemed. He was highly respected and honored, right? And thus, Melchizedek is often referred to by, by uh, biblical scholars as, as a type of Christ. Melchizedek is a type of Christ, which means he, he represents, he foreshadows Christ in some way, uh, in his work, in, in the way he, he, he carried himself, uh, some way he, he reflected who Christ was. So the author of Hebrews compares the two, compares Melchizedek with Jesus, and demonstrates that even though Melchizedek was a great, great man, and there's no doubt about that. He was a great man, right? Even though Melchizedek was a great man, Jesus, on the other hand, was something altogether better, superior in every single way to Melchizedek. We might even say that Jesus was, was the ultimate high priest. He was the best of the best. There was nobody better, nobody before, nobody after. So what is a priest? Just like the Old Testament prophets, priests had specific duties. Whereas the prophets, they came to um, reveal God's will to the people and, and to show them the way of salvation, right? The priests did something a little bit different. They represented God to his people, and they represented the people of God to God, right? They interceded for God's people. They were mediators in that way. They offered sacrifices for God's people. They prayed for God's people. And, and, and ultimately, that's, that's a comparison that works for what Jesus did for us. Because that's what Christ did for us. He intercedes for his people. He sanctifies them from their sin. So, so that they can ultimately be reconciled to God. So they can have a relationship with God the Father. And be connected to the Father from whom they were separated by their sin before. But beyond that connection, we, we see that the, thing, the, the comparison falls short. For Jesus is just better. Jesus is better in every single way. He's superior to all the other priests. Because the, the offering that Jesus offers to God, the sacrifice that he makes, is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. He offers something to God without blemish. Something that's never spoiled, something that's never done wrong, something that is entirely without sin. If you recall in the last three verses of Hebrews 7, the author says this. He said, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. 
He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. No matter how great they are, no matter how wonderful they appear to be, every other priest in the Bible was imperfect. Even Melchizedek, he had flaws. None were without sin. Thus, verse 27, we're told that that they had to offer sacrifices regularly, right? Repeatedly, not not just for the people, but for themselves to cover their own sin. Because before doing so, for the people, they they had to be clean as well. This regular, repeated sacrifice, this need for it was something that was necessary in the temple because the sacrifices that they offered up, if they offered them up without offering up for their own sacrifices, their sacrifices would be tainted by sin, by their own sin. So they failed to perfectly and permanently atone for sin. Think of it, think of the Old Testament prophets a little bit like um, washing laundry, right? Right? Wouldn't it be great if you could wash something once and you never needed to wash it again? Wouldn't it be great if you could mow your lawn once and you never needed to mow it again? Shovel snow once and you never needed to... Wouldn't it be great if, you, if you, could only, you only had to wash an item of clothing once? You brought it home from the store, you washed it, it was clean forever. It set this magical thing into motion where it never needed to be washed again. It would be nice, but we all know that's not the case. Right? I mean, clothes need to be washed regularly. They get dirty. They won't, they won't stay clean. They, they get washed. They need to have be washed so that they can be clean and we can wear them again and again and again. But it's a repeated process, something that has to be done in order for the clothes to be clean. That's, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament priests. That's the offerings that they were offering up. It had to be repeated time and time again because the sins that the people would continue to commit would make them dirty, so to speak. They needed to be washed over and over again. But Christ's offering of himself was entirely different because he was holy, he was blameless, he was pure, he was set apart from sinners, he was exalted above the heavens. Thus, when he offered himself for our sins as a sacrifice, he did so once for all time. So our sin, past, present, and future would be forgiven, all of it. It's done once. It's done once by the Savior so that we could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to God. As the passage today said, the repeated sacrifice of the priests could not make anyone perfect. It says it again in Hebrews 10.1. But Christ can because he was the perfect sacrifice. And thus, thus he applies to each of us. He applies to those who have faith in him. He applies to us a complete righteousness. A righteousness that only he can provide for us. Now we look backwards in the passage to Hebrews 7.2. And in that spot, he recounts, the author recounts the interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham. And we're told that Melchizedek has sort of two titles. Uh, Melchizedek, the, the name Melchizedek means righteous or righteous king. And uh, the word Salem means peace. So Melchizedek was known as the king of righteousness or the king of peace. Both very honorable titles, right? By, by all standards, those are very honorable titles. King of righteousness, king of peace. To be called the king of righteousness means one's, one rules with righteousness. 
They, they, they reign with righteousness. They're decent, they're fair, they're good, they're honest, they're just in the way they govern. They don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't steal, they don't slander. They treated every person with the dignity and respect that they deserved as, as, as children and, and those created in God's image. Throughout the Bible, Jesus is talked about in the exact same way, right? I mean, that's no surprise. We know that. We, we've read the passages before. Throughout the Bible, Jesus is described with the exact same language. For example, the prophet Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in all of the land. This is your God. This is Christ. Clearly, the author of Hebrews wants us to see the similarities between Melchizedek and Christ, between the king of righteousness and the righteous king. And at the same time, he wants us to understand that Jesus is superior. He's just totally better in every way. While Melchizedek rules in righteousness, it's not his own righteousness from which he rules. That is to say, he's not the one that gets to decide what is good and fair and just and right and true and pure. That's in God's hands. He doesn't get, Melchizedek doesn't get to determine that. God does. And thus, when Melchizedek ruled in righteousness, he ruled with God's righteousness. He ruled uh, with a borrowed righteousness, you might say. He, he was doing it under the realm of what God declared to be good and right and true and just. This truth can be seen in the fact that Salem had a righteous king, despite the fact that, that, that all of the places that surrounded Salem at the time, all of the places that, that surrounded Salem during the time of Abraham were filled with godlessness and idolatry. Yet Melchizedek remained righteous, not because he was some sort of Marvel superhero. He wasn't Superman. He remained righteous because God raised him up for that very purpose. God raised him to demonstrate his righteousness, to demonstrate who God is, his forgiveness, his love, his kindness, his goodness, his holiness, his purity. And since God is the author of righteousness, Melchizedek was simply reflecting the righteousness of God. Hey, don't get me wrong, that was a great thing to do, right? Certainly it's great to reflect God's righteousness, but, but it doesn't measure up to the one who, who sets the standard. It's the one who sets the standard that is, that is the best, is the greatest. And that, that is the king of righteousness, Jesus Christ. It's not, Melchizedek was great, but not as wonderful as Christ. For he applies his own righteousness, God's righteousness, to us. He doesn't just demonstrate it, he actually applies it to the lives of those who believe. And indeed, he becomes our righteousness for us. Paul explains this in his letter to the Romans. He wrote, Now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or, or a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is our righteousness. He himself is actually the righteousness that God sees in us. In other words, by faith, through faith, his righteousness is applied to us and it makes us right with God. Again, Romans 5, 17-21. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Melchizedek was great. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus, our righteous king, is even better in every single way. He supplies the righteousness that we need before God. He applies it to us so that we can have peace with God, right? That is to say, Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us into our account. Isaiah says this. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. My friends, we're we're covered in Christ's righteousness. The sin we commit is covered in Christ's righteousness. So the sins that were once exposed by the law are now hidden. All past, present, and future debt is forgotten. God loves us because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because we are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified in the name of Jesus Christ. And so though we are still sinners, we're we're still imperfect, we we still mess things up on a regular basis. Believe me. Though we were once enemies of God, we are righteous in his eyes. We're not warring against him as we once did. Now, now we have peace with the one who created us in his image. For Jesus provides our ultimate peace. His his righteousness is the foundation of the peace that we have because his righteousness made it possible for us to be right with God. The fact that we are covered by his righteousness means we can go to him in times of need as as a child goes to a parent. We can have assurance of forgiveness by grace through faith in him. We can know that nothing will ever separate us from his love. Nothing in the world will separate us from his love. We can have peace even when life is difficult and hard. If you're like me, it's that last one that always catches, right? (laughs) Peace when life is hard. Yeah, that's easy to say. But the fact is, it's not easy. Rejection makes us bitter. Failure makes us doubt ourselves. Maybe it makes us doubt God's love for us. Loss makes us sad and grieving and and maybe full of despair. Trials and hardships, they rob us of our joy, our contentment, our security. And consequently, if if it's true that we can have peace with God, if we can truly have a a foundational peace by which we live, why is it that we, we struggle so much to do so at times? Why do we struggle with this life? There are many reasons, of course. Sin is the ultimate reason. Personally, for me, it's a a matter of idolatry, right? 
We struggle with peace because we make idols of things that are not God. We raise them up and put them in his place. And as a result, we fear losing them. We struggle with peace. For many of us, much of our worry, our stress, and our fear stems from the fact that we value other things more than God in our lives. Our families, our friends, our jobs, our possessions, our homes, our security, whatever it might be. And as a result, we worry about losing those things. We base our contentment and our joy and our fulfillment on those things, and essentially we make them our God. They become the gods that we worship. While that may mean that those things have more value than they should, it certainly means that God does not have as much value as he should in our lives. After all, if we did, we'd worry less about losing those things, knowing that we can never lose him. Or, maybe a better way of saying that is, knowing that he will never lose us. He always has us. He always has us. And that, my friends, is the basis of the peace that we have. We have that peace knowing that the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, offered the perfect sacrifice for us. He, he, he applied the complete righteousness to us, and he provides a perfect peace for us by grace through faith in him. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, you are our great high priest. And you are seated at the right hand of God the Father. You are being glorified even there by the angels and those who surround you, Lord. And you are interceding for us, always. Thank you, Lord, for the perfect sacrifice that you have made. Thank you for the abundance of your steadfast love, for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Thank you for calling us to yourself that we might be reconciled to the Father and have peace with him. We pray, Lord, now that, that you would be glorified and honored and, and praised through all the things that we continue to do in our worship service today. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts bring glory and honor to you and may they be pleasing in your sight. We pray that as we prepare our hearts for uh, the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you indeed would prepare us. Show us where we have failed to, to live up to the calling that you've placed on our lives, Lord. And help us to bring glory and honor to you. Through your Holy Spirit who is at work in us, Lord, we pray all these things. In your majestic and holy name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.